You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Good morning and welcome. You are with Counterculture here with Marie on Reality Check Radio. And it's with tremendous pleasure that I introduce professor, writer, podcaster, honey badger and the gadfather himself. Gad said, good morning, Gad. How are you? Oh, good to be with you. Except that where I am, it's not, it's it's good afternoon. It's around two o'clock where I am, but I appreciate the time zone difference. I know. Time travellers, you see. (laughs) <laughs> for, for flightless birds, we do quite well down here in New Zealand. Look, I'm really excited. I managed to get a copy of The Sad Guide to Happiness. It only just got released here in New Zealand in the last um, four or five days. It is available now from Amazon. I managed to get a copy actually via Audible. They released it early so you could get it earlier on Audible in New Zealand. So the f- actually very first question I had is, can you please tell your publisher to let you voice your own book? As a little personal <laughs> request for uh, me. Well, you know, you'd only be amongst the many thousands who've written to me irately for also for the last book, The Parasitic Mind. Luckily, the the main negative criticism that I've received so far on either books has been, why am I not the one narrating it? And as I've told many people, I would love to do nothing but that. But ultimately, the decision is up to the audio publisher who buys the audio rights of the book. And for whatever reason, maybe it's cost, maybe it's logistics. They've always insisted that they want to do it in-house. But maybe having now listened to all of the people's feedback, including yours, in the next book, I'll put it in the contract that it has to be me. Otherwise, no deal. Yeah, he's really good. But you have so many personal insights and anecdotes. And I think they would be made much more powerful if they were read for you. So you can tell them that I I said that. I hear you. (laughs) <laughs> so happiness of course the book is called the, the sad truth about happiness ah the sad truth about happiness right the yes. sad truth about happiness and sad s-a-a-d because it's my last name it's fantastic and one of the things that i wanted to know i've got several questions i want to page your questions but one of the things that struck me is it has modern life made our ability to be happy more difficult That's a good question, and I touch upon it using an evolutionary lens because some of your listeners may not know that my scientific work is at the intersection of evolutionary psychology and the behavioral sciences. How how do we understand human behavior via the evolutionary lens? So in evolutionary medicine, there is a concept called the mismatch hypothesis, which basically argues that something that may have been evolutionarily adaptive in our ancestral past may become maladaptive in the contemporary environment. So the classic example of that would be our gustatory preferences have evolved to solve a recurring endemic problem in our evolutionary history, which is caloric scarcity and caloric uncertainty. And therefore your ancestors and mine, and you and I, probably prefer some instantiation of a fatty food more than raw celery. Now that makes perfect adaptive sense in that ancestral environment where we were defined by scarcity and uncertainty. In today's environment of plentitude, that becomes a mismatch in that my gustatory preferences still wish to hoard, to gorge high calorie foods, but I no longer face that ancestral environment. And that mismatch then results in many of the key health killers. Now you could apply that framework for many of the things that make us unhappy 
in the modern world as per your question so for example we've evolved to be in bands close bands of about 150 people this is called dunbar's number well in today's world i could live in manhattan amongst eight million people so you would think that there's no way for me to be lonely but the reality is i'm very likely to be lonely despite the fact that i'm surrounded by millions of people so because there is a mismatch between the environment of our evolutionary past and the current modern environment we do end up at times being unhappy in all sorts of ways that kind of makes sense in this that if that if our modern life means that we've got so many things that come to ease with us then in order to have happiness do we need the balance then sometimes we also have to have headwinds in our life if we've got everything is perfectly utopian that still doesn't necessarily guarantee happiness yeah yes absolutely so i in in, in one of the later chapters in the books i talk about anti-fragility, which, I mean, the term has been uh, popularized by Nassim Taleb, a fellow Lebanese author, but the concept has existed for thousands of years. There are maxims and adages that speak to that. So that which does not kill you makes you stronger, squeaky doors don't break. Even Seneca, in the epigraph of that chapter, I have a I have a, a quote from Seneca, the Roman Stoic from several thousand years ago, where he basically argues that strong trees that have deep roots are precisely those that can withstand strong wind stressors. And that's what allows them to now no longer be brittle. So now we could apply that exactly to the question that you asked, which is for me to optimally function, to have maximal flourishing, I need to be exposed to stressors, not stressors that kill me or destroy my will to, to live, but sufficiently challenging stressors that if I overcome them, it leads me to a path of optimal flourishing. So par maybe paradoxically, but if you understand it in this framework, it makes perfect sense. My very difficult childhood growing up in Lebanon in the civil war, even though that's a tragic reality, I actually use that I can contextualize anything that I'm feeling on a given day. If I'm pissed off at something, if I'm anxious, if I'm stressed, if I'm upset, I can then always kind of contextualize that compared to whatever I faced in Lebanon. And suddenly I can snap myself out of it. So yes, stressors can actually help us to be happier. So one of the things you talk about in the book quite a lot is your displeasure, particularly with the Canadian tax system, and you've been quite vocal about that, and some of the issues around the weather and, and politically there, and your desire to sort of potentially move far flung and the challenges there. It wasn't until I got to that chapter later on, because I kept thinking, well, if it annoys you so much, why don't you just move? But then that has an own set of challenges itself. Would you ever consider leaving Canada to try and pursue happiness later on, or are you still oh, intrigued? Th yes, thank you for that uh, question. Uh, I would definitely consider it. Now, this sometimes when I say that, someone will write to me irately that you know you're an ingrate immigrant. We accepted you in Canada, you know, fifty years ago or 40 some years ago, and you wanna now abandon us and leave us. Well, the reality is that there are many wonderful things about Canada, but as to your point, uh, I don't believe in a socialist system. I don't believe that 58% uh, of my book royalties should go to the government. 
58%. So only 42% of my personhood, of my thoughts, of my neuronal firings, of my words, of my humor, of my experience for three decades as a professor belong to me. Well, that's not a person who has full personal autonomy. That's not a person who is a dignified free individual because let's put it another way. I work for the government from January 1st till about mid-August. And in mid-August, I'm allowed to keep my money. But the money that I'm allowed to keep, if I spend any of it, then you take 15% of that. So once you add the prohibitively high provincial tax, federal tax, income tax, then provincial sales tax, then federal sales tax, then carbon tax, then property tax, then school tax, then I'm roughly left with about 30 cents to the dollar. That doesn't strike me like a an optimal plan for, for, uh, for flourishing, for personal agency, unless you're one of the people who benefits from taking all that money from me, in which case it's a utopia. Canada is a beautiful place. But in order for that Ponzi parasitic scheme to work, there needs to be suckers like me that fund everybody else. And so, yes, if given the chance, I would leave Canada. Mm, look, uh, don't come here is the uh, short answer to that. It's, <laughs> is we, it as we, bad? We, we have a lot of similarities between Canada. In fact, we're probably more similar to Canada than we are to Australia in a lot of ways. Our polls are now open. We have an election Saturday. One of our green candidates wants to introduce even more tax here and asked, well, wealthy people have said that they may f- leave the country. What do you say to that? And he said, that's okay. We built in 25% of people to do that. So yeah, don't come here again. I don't think you'll be happy here. <laughs> in terms of the similarities, one of the similarities that we have between the two countries is culture. And when I say culture, I don't mean our indigenous cultures. I'm talking about the import that comes from North America primarily, and that's woke culture for all critical social justice, or the bluehead Taliban, as you like to call them. We have a very, we're currently under a very woke government who look like they're going to be departing. They certainly have not made the population of the people very happy. How is it that those people who hold those views, it's one of the observations that I've just casually had, is whenever I've come up against somebody who's really steeped in that ideology, they're miserable. Is it the ideology? Is it their natures? What causes them to be so glum? (laughs) So there are two parts that I need to to expand on to answer that. So in my previous book, not the sad truth of what happens, in the previous book called The Parasitic Mind, I explain how human beings have the capacity to not only be parasitized by actual physical brain parasites, but they can be parasitized by idea pathogens, ideological parasites that can cause us to behave in grossly irrational and maladaptive ways. Now, why is it that these idea pathogens can be so alluring to the the, the blue-haired Taliban? Well, it's because all of those idea pathogens originally start off with a noble goal, But then in the pursuit of that noble goal, if you have to murder and rape truth in the service of that goal, so be it. So for example, equity feminism is a great idea, but basically says that men and women should be treated equally under the law. And I think most of your listeners would say, yeah, sign me up. I'm an equity feminist. 
radical feminists then come along and say, well, in order for us to truly eradicate the sexist patriarchal status quo, we have to promulgate the message that men and women are indistinguishable in every possible way. And if there are any differences, those must be due to social construction. And therefore, that's why radical feminism, social constructivism are some of the key idea pathogens that I talk about in the book. So that's so that explains the first part of your question, which is why is it that so many people fall prey to these parasitic ideas? Now, why is it that they are uniquely gloomy? I, I address that briefly in the in the current happiness book where I argue or demonstrate that much of the research has shown that on average conservatives tend to be happier than progressives. Now, I offer a speculative argument as to why that might be, but I think it's a very plausible one. Conservatives, by the de- by the nature of the word, think that there is something worthy of conserving. So when I wake up, if I'm a conservative, I feel existentially happy that, wait a minute, there are some foundational values in the West that are worthy of being protected, of being conserved, of being passed on to my children. If I'm a progressive, I have the sense of existential doom because the current world that I live in is evil. It's racist, it's Islamophobic, it's transphobic, it's sexist, it's eco-terrorism. So just around the corner, there is unicornia. And if only I can eradicate the current status quo, I'll get to that magic line of unicornia where we could get peace around the world through reggae music. And so until then, I'm pissed off because the current reality is ugly. So I think that is a fundamental existential reason why progressives are so gloomy. Throughout the book, when I was going through the different chapters, I was writing notes and I kept getting like little sayings that would come to mind that my mother's or my grandparents would say to me. So things like, you know, take time to smell the roses, for example, was one of the earlier chapters that I wrote down. And another one was idle hands of the devil's work in terms of keeping yourself goals and productivity. And then you would address things like all good things, but in moderation, which you dedicated a whole chapter to. So is there something that our previous generations knew around attaining happiness that we seem to have forgotten? Yes, another great question. Uh, Look, one of the most daunting things, if not the most daunting thing about embarking on writing a book about happiness is that there's probably no topic that philosophers have covered at greater length than how to live the good life, what's well-being, what, how to live, right? So not just the ancient Greeks covered it, but all all sorts of uh, philosophical traditions have singularly tried to answer that question. Now, I think what was unique Hopefully, if I've done a good job, what what is unique about my book is that, well, my personal experiences are unique to me. And then I mix that with some ancient wisdoms backed up by contemporary science, and hopefully we have a good melange. But to your question, yes, there are many ancient wisdoms that have stood the test of time precisely because they are invariant to time or culture. So the the one that you mentioned, the, the last one, the everything in moderation, I mean, several traditions have made that point. Buddha, the the Buddhists talk about middle way, but the most famous manifestation of that principle is Aristotle. In his uh, Nicomachean ethics, he talks about the golden mean. So for example, he says that if a soldier is too cowardly, meaning lacking courage, that's a bad thing. But if he is extremely reckless in his bravery and courage, well, then you martyr yourself, you die in three seconds. So somewhere in the middle must lie the optimal 
mean or in, to use a colloquialism from today is the sweet spot right and so what i demonstrate in that chapter is that that profound piece of wisdom applies to a bewildering number of human phenomena at the neuronal level at the individual level at the societal level at the ecological level at the economic level so that's what makes many of these ancient wisdoms so powerful is because we truly don't appreciate how universal they are mm. so when society that you live in politically has tilted away from that sweet spot as it were so you look politically like the Overton window. I don't know what your observations are, but certainly for me in my 50-odd years is that I felt that things have shunted very much towards the left side of the scale. And, and it almost feels like we require rebalancing. How do you then, you can t deal with your individual happiness, but how do you then combat when your environment seems to be so unbalanced or unhappy around you? So, uh, I mean, I can answer it for me or more generally for people. So for me, so I'm often asked, you know, why is it that you lend your voice in the, all these battles? I mean, you already lead a very, you know, active and stressful life as a, you know, professor. I have a lab, research, teaching, graduate students, grants. Uh, that's enough for 10 people. Why do I then do all the other stuff? Well, and my answer is, and, and it can then be applied to other people at various levels of mo modulation. I have a very exacting and punishing code of personal conduct, such as, such as at the end of the night, when I put my head on the pillow to sleep, the only way that I can forestall insomnia is if I know that I was fully authentic in everything that I did. I was truthful. I didn't shy away from speaking my mind because of a careerist concern, because according to my calculus, that would be fraudulent. That would be a sham. That means I'm doing something that is inauthentic. And therefore, because that's for better or worse, that is an, a dispositional part of my personality, I can't walk away from all the craziness. That's why I do it in a very natural way. I can't be anything but what I am, right? Now, for other people, they might say, yeah, but you know, I'm not a fancy professor. I don't have your platform. I'm not Joe Rogan. There's always an excuse for why you shouldn't be the one to lend your voice in the battle. You know, Jordan Peterson is, seems like a big boy. He could handle it for the rest of us. Well, no, I say, of course, you may not have the voice of Joe Rogan, but Within your sphere of influence, you could affect change. If you're sitting at a private uh, function at, at a pub with a bunch of friends and someone says something that you find hallucinatorily imbecilic, like men too can menstruate, then maybe challenge that person. Don't be afraid about them not thinking you're a good friend or it might cause division. I In, in the parasitic mind, I say any friendship that cannot withstand the anti-fragility of us having opposing opinions is a friendship that is not worth having. I'm not interested in being your friend if, I can, if, if there is no room for me to ever disagree with you. And so for me, that, that's why in that, in the previous book, uh, I talk about activating your inner honey badger as you kindly, when you introduced me, you said honey badger. The reason why I use the honey badger imagery is because the honey badger is has been actually rated as the most ferocious animal in the animal kingdom. It's the size of a small dog, yet it is so intense that lions are afraid to approach it just because of its fierceness. Well, be as ideologically fierce as that. I'm not suggesting that you be physically violent, but if there's a set of principles that you truly believe on, uh, believe in, don't cower away, don't be a wimp, don't suck your thumb in a fetal position, be a honey badger.
We call them courageous conversations on the show. And I'm often talking about with people with feedback, they'll say, oh, but Maria, I couldn't do this and I couldn't do that. And I said, yeah, but you can have a courageous conversation in the line at the supermarket. Exactly yeah. right. There you go. Yeah. And you I just want to cycle back to the parasitic mind. I have read out a passage, and I refer to it often here on this show, about the ostrich parasitic syndrome, because that seems to be quite endemic in this country, especially at the moment. Just explain to the listeners what that is and how you can actually hopefully pull some heads out of sands or, you know, out of asses, as I like to say. Yes. So let's suppose I were to show you that since 9-11 alone, there have been over 35,000 terror attacks in nearly 70 countries. Those 70 countries vary in every possible way that two countries could vary on, ethnically, racially, politically, socioeconomically, uh, temperature-wise, anything you want, they vary. There is one key unifying theme as to what is the identity or motive of the person who has committed that it's a religious ideology that we're not going to mention because it would be phobic to do so now here comes the super smart the highfalutin the, the 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 intellectuals with the progressive lisp explaining to us that ahmed hussein muhammad when he quoted his a religious text to justify why he did committed the particular attack that's actually not the reason why it happened it was due to lack of art exposure because which of us has not decided to join isis and throw gays off rooftops if we weren't exposed to enough picassos that's a straight causal link bill nye the super smart science guy explained to us that the bataclan attack in paris and and the 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 civil war in Syria was actually very clearly caused by climate change. It was lack of solar panels that caused that. That's what ostrich parasitic syndrome is. There is no amount of evidence that could ever convince my lying eyes of what the truth is, because it is simply too difficult for me to accept that. And therefore, I bury, metaphorically speaking, my head in the sand, and I go, la, 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 I don't want to hear it. By the way, uh, in the in the parasitic mind, I list all of the, quote, reasons that have been offered for those 35,000 attacks, 35,000 plus. And it really is, I mean, people, people sometimes write to me and say, well, did you, is that just you being satirical? No, I actually got those from published sources, right? So it's, I can, I can cite all of those references. So it's due to lack of art exposure. It's climate change. It's beard bullying, right? The, the San Bernardino attack was because the guy had a big beard and at work, he was constantly, you know, told derogatory things about his beard. That's why he ended up going and you know, killing a bunch of people. So it is so laughable. It is so outlandish that I thought, well, what could clearly demonstrate this desire to ignore reality? And hence I coined it ostrich parasitic syndrome. I know Matthias Desmet sort of kind of calls it a mass formation. Like for, I mean, he talks about it on a much larger yeah. scale with the COVID crisis. His solution to it is, in the book, he wasn't particularly definitive. I think he's become more definitive over time. But he did talk about 
interrupting the signals. How do you see interrupting that? Because I know here in this country at the moment, there are a lot of heads and a lot of sand. Yes. And I, the station was created as a way to disrupt that signal. So how do, you, how do we do that in our every, everyday lives? So what I'm going to offer as a vaccine against this stuff presupposes that one thing has to happen, that the person with whom I am interacting is intellectually honest enough to grant me the courtesy of hearing me out. If they literally say, la, 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 there is, I'm not going to pay it, then, then they're impenetrable. They're, I cannot reach them. So with that caveat, let me offer, uh, if you'll forgive me, it'll be a slightly long explanation. Uh, so in chapter seven of the parasitic mind, I the chapter is titled How to Seek Truth. And I basically, because truth is ultimately the antidote to parasitic ideas, but then how do we seek truth? And so I argue there that there is an epistemological tool that we can use to seek truth. And I call it nomological networks of cumulative evidence. So it's it's a mouthful, but it really truly captures what you need to do to, to, to tackle some of these thorny issues. So let me give it, it the, the best way to demonstrate it is via an example. So let's suppose I wanted to prove to you that uh, toy preferences have a sex specificity because of biological and evolutionary reasons. In other words, little boys typically on average prefer certain types of toys and little girls prefer other types of toys. And it's not because mommy and daddy are sexist pigs who are promulgating patriarchal gender roles, okay? Which is, by the way, the standard explanation that social scientists give. The reason why Bubba can bench press more weights than Linda is because very early he learned how to play rough rough and tumble with the trucks and little Linda learned how to play gently and you know in a nurturing manner with uh with the the pink doll and that's what then causes the downstream effect of him being able to bench press more. I mean it is so insane that it, it you, you you really wonder I mean are they true they are parasitized. Okay so now I want to prove to you that it's not true. How would I go about doing that? So number 1 I can get you data from developmental psychology showing you that little children who are too young to be socialized by definition it could not be due to social construction they already exhibit those sex specific toy preferences so already just that one piece of evidence is enough to blow the thing out of the water but I'm not going to stop there I'm going to build you an unassailable network of triangulated evidence. I can get you data from vervet monkeys and rhesus monkeys and chimpanzees showing you that their infants exhibit the same sex-specific toy preferences as human infants. I can get you data from completely different cultures that have nothing to do with the West showing you that they exhibit the same sex-specific toy preferences. I can get you data from 2,500 years ago in ancient Greece and ancient Rome where on mausoleums and funerary monuments, little children are depicted playing with the exact same sex-specific toy preferences. I'll do one more, although the, the network is even much bigger than that. I can get you data from pediatric endocrinology, whereby little girls who suffer from congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which is a endocrinological disorder that masculinizes the behaviors of little girls. Well, little girls who suffer from this condition have toy preferences that are akin to those of boys. So look what I've done. I've gotten you data from across disciplines, across methodologies, across cultures, across species, across time periods, all of which triangulate to my position being the vertical one. So that's how I'm able to walk into forums where I'm expecting 
that people are going to be hostile, but I walk in with the confidence of someone who's 75 feet tall. Why? Because I have built the requisite nomological network to be able to debate you on that. Now, interestingly, that also allows me to be epistemologically humble in that I know what I know and I know what I don't know. If right now you were to ask me a question such as, well, Canada was one of the first countries to legalize marijuana. What have been what have what have been the the downstream effects of that? I would answer very honestly, well, unfortunately, I don't know enough about this topic. I haven't built the requisite network to offer you something definitive. But when I know, I know and good luck to you if you want to debate me. So I think the difficulty in what I'm proposing as a mind vaccine is that, as you can see, it requires a lot of cognitive effort on the on my part to build the network. And you, as my interlocutor, has to have the intellectual decency to allow me to sh show you the network. If you don't do that, then my mind vaccine won't work. And that's the problem, is that for most people, they just scream at each other, they talk past each other, whereas I'm offering a way by which I can sit down without any hysteria, lay out the evidence, and then I could flip you to my way of thinking. So how does humor play into that? Because you were able to spread that truth using humor. What's the importance of humor in getting that truth out there, that truth vaccine out? Yeah, so uh, humor is an incredibly, I, I, I say that humor is akin to the surgeon's scalpel cutting through warm butter. It has a way of, in a very adroit manner, cutting through bullshit. That's why dictators, the first people that they want to eradicate are the satirists. They don't look for the guys who have the biggest muscles because those guys we can take care of easily. That's not hard I've, because the dictator has bigger muscles than the guys who have big muscles. He holds all the power in terms of uh, you know dishing out violence. But the sharp tongue, the, the poisonous stingy pen of the satirist, that's really dangerous because that's what can bring down my ideology as a dictator. So humor is an, if, if done properly, so and under humor, I'm putting also satire, sarcasm, mockery, all of these things under the rubric of humor are an incredibly persuasive, persuasive strategy if, uh, if dished out appropriately. And it's so powerful that whenever, so when I'm stopped, say by someone who recognizes me on the, on the street, I would say one out of two times, the thing that they will you know thank me for, which I almost feel offended by, it won't be, oh my God, I love the profundity of your scientific output, or it'll be, oh my God, I love how you mock the, the, the woke people with your fake self-flagellation. I love how you hide under the desk, pretending that you're hysterically afraid because that's punchy. It cuts through the bullshit. That's why, by the way, the, when I usually interact with someone and I mock them into oblivion, that's what gets them the most angry. There's nothing more stingy than when you arm your derision and mockery at someone. That's what really hurts. That's why it's effective. Now, before we disappear, there's two questions that I have left. One is there were eight pillars that you've had in the book in terms of finding happiness. For you, what is the most important? Uh, well, it's hard to say the most, but probably uh, the ones that are most digestible for people is finding the right spouse and finding the right job. And the reason why I, I'm going to, since you're asking me to kind of mention one of the chapters, the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm saying those is because, so you wake up in the morning 
the first thing that happens is you're waking up next to someone. If that person is someone that you like, well, that's a good way to start the day. Now I go off out of bed and I go to a profession that if it brings me existential bliss, now I'm really happy as I'm away from that bed. Then I return to that bed to that person that I really like. Well, if I can make those decisions properly, then I've somewhat cracked the secret to happiness. Now, what are some ways by which I can try to ensure that I'm making the right choice, whether it be for spouse or for job? So I argue that, so let's do mate choice first. Uh, There are two opposing maxims in evolutionary psychology when it comes to mate choice. There's the opposite opposites attract maxim and then there's the birds of a feather flock together maxim and it turns out that for long-term success of a marriage it's overwhelmingly the case that birds of a feather flock together now the question is flocking on which feathers what what are you trying to assort here you're talking about having shared belief systems share foundational values it becomes a lot more difficult for a union to be successful if some of these foundational values we completely disagree on doesn't mean that we can't overcome it but statistically speaking it becomes that much harder when it comes to the you know optimal way to to be happy in your job i argue that there are two metrics that are really important number 1 all other things equal any job that grants you the possibility to instantiate your creative impulse is one that's going to give you purpose and meaning. So you could be a chef, you could be a stand-up comic, you could be an architect, you could be a podcaster or an author and professor. Each of these people are doing very, very different jobs, but they're all immersed within their domains in the act of creation, of creativity. That gives me purpose and meaning. The other thing I would say is a job that grants you temporal freedom. So think of the factory worker who has... Uh, the lack of dignity to even decide when he or she can take a bathroom break. It's mandated. At 10.15, you get a five-minute bathroom break. At 12, you get a 30-minute break to eat, right? Versus my reality, which is I probably work harder than most people. I work very long days, very long hours in a day, but I'm vagabonding. Now I go off to the cafe for four hours to work on the idea for my next book. Then I have a meeting with a graduate student to discuss some really nice ideas. Then I have a chat with a lovely radio host in New Zealand, and then I'm off, right? So I'm, in in French, you say flaneur, you're vagabonding. And the fact that I've got this ability to kind of float around, even though I'm always working hard, gives me a great sense of personal agency. So to the extent that you can hit those marks, you're well on your way to being happy. Excellent. And the other thing that you mentioned in the book, of course, was dogs. And I was quite pleased to hear you mention the English Mastiff in your book because I happen to own an English Mastiff and a Bulldog. I was a little perturbed though because I'd like to think I do not look like either of my dogs. But (laughs) I looked at a checklist. So as I was going through the book, I was checking things off. So stable decision with my spouse and partner check you know happy with my work check and then the dogs came and I thought ah trifecta for happiness Marie you've won Uh, oh I almost can't think forgive me for interrupting I almost can't think of a more direct way to have an infusion of happiness in your life than to interact with the dog they're built to make you happy They certainly are. Now, the book, of course, is The Sad Truth to Happiness. It is available here in this country via Amazon, and hopefully it will also be available uh, with some key booksellers. It is looking like Paper Plus and Wickles also will be carrying that. It is out now. I purchased it it on Audible, so you can also listen to it as well. I'm a hand knitter gad, so that's why I like um, the Audible books, so I can knit 
So mindfulness for the knitting and mindfulness for the mind at the same time. Anything else uh, that you can leave us to inspire us before we go here in New Zealand? Uh, well, keep fighting the woke government that you have. Uh, we deserve to live free, dignified lives. We don't need governmental intrusion into the minutiae of our lives. I should mention, by the way, that I spent two weeks in New Zealand, my first sabbatical ever in 2001. I spent five weeks in Australia, two weeks in New Zealand. And notwithstanding your warning that I would be equally unhappy in New Zealand, you do have a beautiful country, and I look forward to one day returning to it. Oh, we would love to host you. That would certainly be an absolute joy. This has been Gad Sad here on Counterculture. Now, I don't want any, anybody to disappear. Coming up in a moment, I'm going to let you know how you could win a copy of The Sad Truth to Happiness here exclusively on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. Thanks, Gad. Thank you so much. Cheers. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Yeah, yeah. Reality Check Radio. Radio.